0: All right, let's open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6. And while uh, you're turning there, I'm going to tell you something that annoys me. You know what? Well, okay. Everything annoys me. So what I'm talking about is something that really bothers me. It actually troubles me because of how beloved this genre has become. Uh, I like all kinds of genres, genres of books, genres of movies. One of the genres I do not like is called heaven tourism. You guys know what heaven tourism is as a genre? You know, you don't. You're blessed and favored among men. Um, heaven tourism is a genre that became really popular in the early part of the 21st century uh, where people are recounting these alleged experiences, where they get to visit or tour heaven and hang out with Jesus, and then they come back to tell us all about it in the form of a book that you can buy for 1995. Um, and of course, these these experiences themselves are uh, well. They are untrue insofar as they have no correlation to Scripture or the truths that are in Scripture. Uh, Even people that might have an experience and aren't trying to deceive people, I do believe, are not communicating the truth of heaven in their books. And in addition to that, they are all universally, one thing, the one thread that runs through all of them is, uh, what do you call it? Uh, They're cheesy. And uh, that should be enough for you to kind of take a step back from the books as anything true but the most popular one, at least the most well-known account, uh, was a book actually written by a boy. It was, it was written by a boy and his, his father, um, Kevin and Alex. Alex was the boy. In 2004, they were in a car accident, near fatal, and young Alex wound up in a coma for two months. He comes out of the co- coma two months later, says... Hey, man, uh, we need to start telling everybody what it's like in heaven because I was there. And so he and his father write this book, uh, The Boy Who uh, Came Back from Heaven. And it was released in 2010. And uh, uh, Alex, uh, Alex's last name is Malarkey, by the way, which is, uh, which is pretty awesome. Because if you don't know, uh, Malarkey means... Uh, To put it nicely, nonsense, that's what it means. Word's been around since 1920, so it's an old word, not as old as the name malarkey, so I guess they get dibs. Nevertheless, Alex and his dad, malarkey, wrote this book about this kid's experience in heaven in 2010. In 2012, his mom began to explain to anyone who would listen that it was actually all a big hoax. And then in 2015, Alex himself, he's starting to grow up. He knows what he did. He knows that he and his dad made the whole thing up. So he starts writing and telling the publishers that have been publishing his book, yeah, we made it all up. And I'm glad that they did this. I mean, uh, I'm always glad when the truth comes out. But the problem with these books is they appeal to a felt need that we all have to wonder what's on the other side of death. What's going on in heaven? What's God like? And those are good thoughts, feelings, desires. But then we listen to people who are making it up or who are just plain wrong or who are basing their revelation on an experience under duress. You want to peek at heaven? You really want to look inside? You really want to see what heaven's like? Then you read the book of Revelation. And that's what we're doing. We read this book and we actually get a peek into heaven. We're not just looking behind the curtain. The door is swung open and we're allowed to enter into parts of it with the apostle John. And that's happening here again in Revelation chapter six. So to make sense of chapter six, I wanna give us a brief recap of this vision that began in chapter four. So in chapter four, John is in the spirit, right? He's having this, this crazy experience where he has this vision given to him by the Lord and a door is open in heaven and he can see in and then he's invited to walk through the door and check out what's happening. And what does he see? He sees in the center of this room, Really, it's the center of the universe, I believe, but he sees at the center is a throne and God is sitting on the throne. And of course, to describe God is pretty hard because he's incomprehensible, he's spirit. And the vision that John has is so mind-blowing, all he can do is describe God in terms of gemstones, right? Colors, gemstones. And then around this throne are 24 more thrones. And on those thrones are 24 elders representing the people of God. And they, of course, are, are worshiping God who sits on the throne. And then there are four living creatures around the throne as well. Creatures. Angelic beings, but they're described as creatures because they have eyes all over themselves. They've got bunches of wings. And they look different, right? One looks like a lion, one looks like an ox, one looks like a man, and one looks like an eagle, And the four living creatures around this throne in the center of the universe are singing, praising God who sits on the throne, saying that he is holy and that he is worthy. And the vision continues in chapter five. Pastor Jimmy covered this last week. And in chapter five, John's watching this vision and he can make out that in the right hand of him who sits on the throne is a scroll with seven seals. There's a scroll with seven seals, uh, representing the unfolding plan that God has for all things unto the end. He's got this scroll in his hand, and it needs to be opened. It has to be opened, but there's nobody on earth or in heaven who can open it. No one's worthy, and John is so stressed out by this. He knows it has to be opened if things are going to progress according to God's plan. He begins to weep, and in the midst of weeping, someone says, Ah! It's the lion of Judah. He can open up the scroll. And so John looks, and what does he see? He doesn't see a lion, he actually sees a lamb. Same person. The lion of Judah is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He sees Jesus, but in this vision, it's a lamb that looks as though it has been slain, but yet it is alive. And he has seven horns. And he has seven eyes. You want to peek into heaven? This is what you see. It bends. It tests. It challenges your preconceived ideas. It pushes you to see God in a very dramatic light because we become so accustomed to the earthly descriptions that we have of God that are good and true we need this to see his exalted status there is Christ and the spirit and the father together and Jesus can take the scroll Jesus can open it now people want to know what is the scroll and I want to say on the front end what it is Okay, because I don't want us trying to like, well, how do we understand? Understanding what the scroll is helps us as we work our way through the seals that Jesus is going to open. And the scroll is essentially, if we're going to just say it it as plainly as, as I can, the scroll is God's sovereign, unfolding plan of judgment and redemption. That's what it is. The scroll is God's sovereign unfolding plan of both judgment and redemption. It's all of this. Now, why is this the vision that John has? Why is John seeing all of this, all of this imagery, the scroll? What's the point of it? I mean, is, he try, is God trying to entertain him? He, he, he's revealing this to John so that John will find comfort in the midst of his affliction, in the midst of being put on an island, exiled and left to die. In the midst of his brothers and sisters being persecuted for the faith, just like the whole book of Revelation was given with the purpose of encouraging those who are persecuted and going through tribulation, so is this particular vision. Knowing this, here is the one truth, the sermon summary, right? The one truth that all of chapter 6 Teaches us this is what you must hold on to to make sense of this chapter in a way that will bear fruit in your life. It's this both our salvation and our suffering rest in the hands of our sovereign Savior. Both our salvation, which most of us are going to say amen to, and our suffering rest in in the hands of our sovereign Savior. All right, so let's look at chapter six together as we consider uh, what these seals are as they are uh, being opened. And the first four seals that are opened are sort of grouped together because here's where you find out about the four horsemen, right? So everybody from Johnny Cash to Megadeth has sung about the four horsemen. Uh, Four horsemen, a popular concept. People have been borrowing from the Bible for, for centuries and telling stories and writing music, well, let's look at what's actually happening. First seal, verses one and two. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So the first of the four horses is White. And the rider of this horse is given a bow and a crown. So whatever he is doing, he's, he is granted permission or authority to do. Given a crown, he's on a white horse. Everybody knows that means it's Jesus, but it's not. I don't believe it is. Now, there are some really great theologians who argue this is definitely Jesus. And then there's some other really great theologians who go, nope, it's not Jesus. You know who it is? Satan. So this is, the, for me, the one part of the passage that I think is the most problematic. Nevertheless, it doesn't ultimately change the point that is being made in this chapter. Now, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time going through all of the arguments for is it Satan or is it Jesus? I, I will tell you this, that good people differ on how to interpret this. The reason I don't believe it's Jesus is because, number one, uh, the angel commands him to come. It's like almost issuing forth a command. That makes me uh, a a little uncomfortable. But the textual reason, the, the, the contextual reason, is because these four horsemen come together, seem to be allied, and they are even working in a uniform direction, as we'll see. So I think to recognize the latter three as in some way wickedness or evil and the first one to be disassociated from that doesn't make much sense so I believe with with some scholars that either this is the devil or more likely it just represents evil evil in the world evil that has been allowed to continue to apparently conquer through a variety of ways and we're going to see what those ways are So the first seal is broken. The white horse, the rider on it, evil forces. Second seal in verses three and four, it's the red horse. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Ah, you see he's given again. Here we have what most commentators say uh, is war. The red horse, red for blood. We have this rider on the horse who comes and he takes away peace. And what does he replace it with? Conflict. Murder. All kinds of of war, including persecution of God's people. Right, so whether it's war and military conflict between nations or warring factions within society who are destroying one another's lives or the persecution of God's people these horsemen are let loose into the world and throughout history ever since the fall we have seen evil attempting to conquer and war destroying people families and even nations then the third seal is opened in verses five and six it's the black horse This one seems a bit more obscure, right? It seems even less straightforward because it's actually getting specific and rather worldly in its, in its description. The third seal most likely is referring to famine and economic hardship that happens in the world. You see, in this world, in this fallen world, what do we have? We have evil, we have war, we have injustice, famine, and economic hardship. And we understand it to be something like famine and hardship because the scales are brought out and the prices that are being demanded for something that is the equivalent of a loaf of bread is a whole day's wages. A denarius for a loaf of bread? A day's wages to buy one loaf? Nobody can survive on this. Now, most of us have it pretty easy because we were born when we were born and when we were born, at least easy compared to other people around the world. But there is not just inflation, but poverty and crippling famine and hardships that is globally experienced. And then there is a fourth seal. A fourth seal that is open out of the seven representing the last of the four horses. And this is the pale horse. Verses seven and eight. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. What's interesting about this particular horse is that its rider is named. The rider's name is Death. So we have evil, right? We have war, we have famine, and we have death. Death rides across the world taking a fourth. Given permission, death has come and is wreaking havoc. But death doesn't come alone because death comes to everyone, but Hades comes with him. And Hades means that of those who die, there will be many who will not just die, but they will experience Hades itself, hell, the judgment of the Lord. They're not just dead, they're also damned. All of this, these four horsemen who are let into the world, bringing suffering, affliction, death, and evil, they are all here, but they are all here under control. They are a part of the scroll. They are a part of the unfolding plan of God to bring about judgment and redemption. The four horsemen. Then we get to the fifth seal. In verses 9 through 11, listen. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth Then they were each given white robes and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The fifth seal opens after the four horsemen have been released. And now, what's coming into focus is the persecution of God's people, and in particular, the martyrdom of the saints. There are these martyrs, those who have died for the faith because they wouldn't bend the knee, because they confessed Christ without compromise. Even when they were told, you will die, we will burn you at the stake, cut you in half, draw and quarter you, behead you, leave you stranded on an island. We will do whatever, we'll destroy your family. They say, I can't deny Christ, I'm going to follow him. These people who were killed are the martyrs of our faith. And they, in this vision, are underneath an altar. So it's like the, the picture now was on the earth, these horses being lit into the world, but now he's looking up into heaven. And in heaven there's an altar. Now, what altar? Oh, there's different altars in the Old Testament. More than likely, the altar that these saints, these slain saints, are underneath, is the altar of incense. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there was an altar of incense that stood just outside of the Holy of Holies in the holy place where the high priest would go in to make sacrifices, in the holy place, the other priests were allowed to come in. And there were various things happening in that holy place. But one of the things was the altar of incense, which was a symbol of the prayers of God's people ascending to heaven. So more than likely they're under this altar. Here's the picture, right? Their prayers are going up to the Lord. Now, what are they doing there? They are pleading. They are pleading with God. They are crying out for justice and for judgment. They're not crying out in blind fury for vengeance. They're praying that God would avenge them, that is, justify them, that is, stand up for them and make sure that the wicked are held accountable. They're crying out for justice and judgment against those who took their lives. And what is their appeal Their appeal is to Sovereign Lord. See, they know, they're convinced that we can pray and ask God to do this because he is the only one who can do anything about it. He is sovereign. If anyone can fix it, it's him and he can. He can drop the hammer. He can bring judgment today. So Sovereign Lord, will you do this? And God's response is not yet. He says, instead, I want you to rest. I want you to rest a little while longer. I want you to be patient until the day of the Lord. And that day is not going to come until, he says, the rest of those who have been set apart from martyrdom are martyred. In other words, your vindication, ultimate justice will not come until more people die unjustly and cruelly. I know you, you don't, maybe you don't like that idea. If I was in charge, I would take care of evil right now. If you were in charge, we would have an evil person in charge. You wouldn't take care of anything, you'd mess it up. So would I, quickly. We have to trust that God actually knows what He is doing. We have to trust and believe that His ways are not our ways, and that when He says, "No, listen, I've got a purpose and a plan behind every action of wicked men, even the martyrdom of innocent, godly people." all of that is working towards my ultimate end game. So trust me and hang in with me. Rest now, and they're clothed in white, right? They are righteous in Christ. They are, they are pure and undefiled. But they have to wait for God's plan. You see, this peek into heaven gives us a peek above, but also a peek below. What's happening above and what's happening here. That's what a look into heaven actually shows you. You get to see behind the scenes, behind the circumstances. We've got suffering, affliction, death, and evil. In this world, the people of God are being persecuted by the world, crying out for justice, and then there is a sixth seal that is open. Now, there's seven, and we're not gonna get to the seventh today because the way that God decided to reveal all of this was with interruptions and intermissions. So we're gonna stop at six, we're gonna have a little intermission, we're gonna chill, we're gonna do our thing, gonna keep reading, and then we'll come back and then we'll see, oh, here's the seventh seal to button it all up. But the sixth seal does take us to the beginning of the end. The people of God, these martyrs, were just crying out for judgment. Lord, when is the day, the day of the Lord gonna come? We wanna see justice? And he says, not yet, wait. But when he opens the sixth seal, we are seeing the day of the Lord. The sixth seal is in verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That is the day of the Lord, the final day of judgment, the great reckoning. And what's happening descriptively is creation itself is collapsing. Creation itself is coming apart at the seams. This is the most terrifying way to describe what's happening. You know, if if you've probably noticed over the years that uh, movies like to up the terror uh, dial by giving us greater and greater threats, right? And I've noticed like, wow, you know, like guy in a spooky mask with a knife, hard to kill. It's a pretty good threat. And then you got like, uh, like the Terminator, right? Then you, you got a robot uh, who doesn't have a conscience or anything. And he's, he, he can just keep on. He's from the future. And then you have look, giant monsters. Uh, then you have like UFOs and aliens who want to take over and, 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 and kill us all or enslave us. And then you've got things like <sighs> comets that would absolutely destroy everything on the planet if they were to hit. We make movies about these things because the idea of of the whole earth coming apart, oh, that's we can sort of imagine that way we make movies about usually terrible movies but nevertheless we can can sense like the the fear of this thing. And here creation itself is falling apart. And creation falling apart is how the day of the Lord and the, the last day of judgment is oftentimes depicted both in the Old and in the New Testament. I'm only going to give you a couple of references. There's a bunch, but I'm actually going to give you two. Listen to Joel. We'll start with Joel. Joel chapter two, verse 31. Speaking of that day, right? The day of the Lord The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Same idea, right? No light from the sun means darkness and fear, but it also means no warmth, no heat, no life. It means death. It means the end of everything as we know it. The moon turning to blood, of course, it's terrifying because the moon isn't supposed to be blood red. That's why we even get that that shadow that makes it look red. We're all taking pictures of it because it's so crazy. But here we have something even more dramatic. You can can look in Ezekiel uh, chapter 38. Listen in verse. No, let's go to Isaiah 34. I don't have time for all this. Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34, verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their host shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. So you imagine the stars themselves dropping to the earth, which obviously is impossibility. It's just a dramatic description of the end. The sky rolling up and being peeled back. Creation is collapsing in the day of the Lord. It's symbolic, but it's true. It's real. And the idea here is that this This collapsing of creation as the Lord brings judgment to everyone, it means no one escapes. And the judgment here that we have in mind, the focus is clearly on the unbelievers. Focuses on the unbelievers because they, rich and poor, slave and free, there is no exception to God's judgment because of your social standing or your experience in a particular culture All sinners are held accountable. All the wicked who have not been reconciled to God through Christ can expect this day. And they are dreading damnation. You see, they understand it's not just like, oh, my life's going to be hard now. It's not like, oh, wow, my world is coming apart. The world is coming apart. And they will be left with nothing between them and a holy God why they ask the mountains to fall on them and to hide them is there any way that they can escape because they know that they cannot stand six of the seven seals it's the unfolding of god's sovereign plan of judgment and redemption this is what the book of revelation does it gives us vision after vision showing us god's unfolding plan of judgment and deliverance. It shows us God's unfolding plan of Jesus and the church's victory over the devil and the world. It's showing us that both our salvation and our suffering are held in the hands of a sovereign savior. You want to peek at heaven? You want to know what's going on? then this is what we see. This is what's actually happening, above and below. You see, Jesus has to be sovereign here. He has to be sovereign over your suffering. If Jesus isn't sovereign over your suffering, how can he be sovereign over your salvation? Do you really think that that Jesus could accomplish redemption without being sovereign over all suffering? Was he sovereign over his own suffering? You know that he was. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. There was this covenant of redemption made between the father and the son. The father gives the son these people. The son comes to earth to give up his life willingly as a ransom to redeem those given to him by the father. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord and I'll take it back up again. Peter says that you wicked people killed Jesus, but it was all according to the predetermined plan of God. Jesus was sovereign over his suffering, which ensures your salvation. We know from this and from all of Scripture that God is sovereign and that Christ is sovereign over your suffering as well. And I know that your suffering is real. I know that your affliction and your pain is legit. But if God was sovereign over something far worse that Christ experienced, you you can rest in the knowledge that he has you as well. That there is a purpose, that there is a goal, there is a reason why God allows bad things to happen in this world. Wicked people do bad things and sometimes circumstances just don't seem to go our way. Sometimes we, we blow ourselves up and yet in and over and through it all, God remains sovereign, bringing everything to a greater end. He's taking us somewhere. He's got you. He's got you. He, he doesn't let go. He doesn't, he doesn't lose sight of you. He's not wondering what's the point of this situation that you're in. He knows because in some way as hard as it is it's still a part of the plan he's sovereign over both Christians need to get this this is why we have the book of Revelation because in our lives we will have tribulation and trouble we will want peace we're made for peace but we will not have it not in this world not in this life because sin ruins everything and if you're not a believer and, and you're, you're trying to make sense of the, the, the hellfire preacher who's talking about revelation and seals, and let me encourage you, every aspect of your suffering, affliction, difficulty, and pain, every aspect of that that you experience that is hardship and awful is a result of sin. Sometimes it's your own sin. Sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot. Sometimes it's the result of someone else's sin. They're hurting you. Sometimes it's just a result of sin being in the world that has brought death and corruption so things don't work the way that they're supposed to. What you need to know, what I need to remember, is that God is sovereign even over evil. And he is going to redeem and recreate and renew. But to experience that, to know that we have to look to Jesus. We've got to look to the one who experienced not only evil in ways that we can't imagine, he also experienced the punishment of evil when he died on the cross. He experienced evil from the intention of the devil and the hands of wicked men, but he also experienced the wrath of God the Father against evil the only way to redeem us and he did it willingly so that we could begin to make sense of the evil in our lives as we look towards a future There will be no evil only righteousness justice and peace let's pray father in heaven we ask that you would strengthen our faith and encourage us as we're trying to make sense of a book that is complicated. There's a lot of of dramatic imagery, Lord. There's numbers. There's all kinds of things happening in this book that many of us just are not as familiar with because it was written so long ago and it's a genre of literature that most of us just don't understand. But we know it's your word, God. So we're asking that you would teach us, that your spirit would make things clear for us and that we would be changed by the truths that we see in your word. We're grateful, Lord, that you've taken the time to give us such dramatic images to help us to know you, but also to know ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.